I mentioned about being bold, right? Bold for the gospel. So if you could get there with me, and if you're able to stand, we will read God's word together. So Psalm 19, verses 41 to 48. Good? Okay. All right. The psalmist writes, Let your faithful love come to me, Lord, your salvation as you promised. Then I can answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. I never, never take the word of truth from my mouth, for I hope in your judgments. I will always obey your instruction forever and ever. I will walk freely in an open place because I study your precepts. I will speak of your decrees before kings and not be ashamed. I delight in your commands, which I love. I will lift up my hands to your so grateful that you have given us Psalm 119, Lord. As I've been preaching through these texts over the last few months, many months, it's been eye-opening to see how important your word is for us. But it's this constant tension that we see in these texts of, of, your, of your sovereignty, of your sovereign grace, and our need for that sovereign grace to understand your word, Lord. And though you've given us those desires by changing our hearts, we are constantly pulled and tugged away from your word. As Paul talks about in Romans 7, the inside he delights to do the things of your word, but yet the outer man cannot do it. But it's apart from you, we can do nothing, Scripture says. And so as David has been showing us, we need you to be obedient, Lord. So Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the words you've given us, Lord. And in this sermon tonight, help us to be bold for the gospel. Help us to be bold for Christ, Lord. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the closing chapter of the book of Ephesians, Paul writes, Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. That's Ephesians 6, 19 through 20. When reading Paul's letters, the last thing that comes to my mind is that Paul lacks boldness when proclaiming the gospel. He was imprisoned for preaching the gospel, in fact. And in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-four to 33 it recounts the horrendous calamities and sufferings that Paul experienced for Christ. That is about as bold as it gets. However, Paul, like you and I, was a mere man, a mere human being. There were times when Paul lacked boldness. Otherwise, why else would he ask for prayer to be bold? Can you recall a time when you were in a discussion with a non-believer and the conversation took a turn towards things of the faith, the religious things, right? And in that moment, you lacked that boldness to share the truth that was right there. It was on your tongue, you knew it was there, and you didn't share it. We all have done that at some point, and maybe many of us quite often. For me, it's a convicting moment that lingers in my conscience, a moment of weakness And I cowered from sharing the gospel. I can hear the accuser in my ear calling me a faithless coward. A faithless coward. 
And then Revelation 21.8 comes to my mind, which says, But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Do you see the groupings there? Cowards and faithless, with detestable murderers, and on and on it goes. But, and thank God for the buts in Scripture. He says, take heart. The Lord has conquered the world, including your sinfulness. He is faithful to his promise. In John 10, 28. No one, including yourself, no one, including yourself, will snatch you out of his hand, nor the Father's hand. So that Revelation passage John speaks of, he's really speaking of apostates who have denied the faith and stand condemned. But let that passage still be a warning to you about that. But what, was Paul, what does Paul tell Timothy for us? For us, He says in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God is faithful to his people, even when they lack boldness. He is faithful to his people, even when they, even when they show cowardice. And he is faithful to his people even when they show faithlessness. While we are thankful that God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable, as Paul tells us in Romans eleven twenty nine, we don't want to lack boldness, show cowardice, and exhibit faithlessness in moments when gospel courage is needed. In this section of Psalm 119, we're going to be able to mark out a path to boldness, a path to boldness in proclaiming the gospel. And this path has five markers, and there'll be a slide up there for you, has five markers that we're going to see. The first marker is trust of the word, trust of the word. The second marker is obedience to the word. The third marker is seeking the word. The fourth one is love of the word, and the fifth one is love of the word leads to worship. So verses 41 to 43 make up our first marker, which is trust of the word. And I'm going to read the passages as we go through it again. Verse 41, let your faithful love come to me, Lord, your salvation as you promised. So David begins by expressing his desire to experience what we call the hesed love of God. Hesed love. It's a special love that we see in the Hebrew Bible. It's actually the word, as has said, means love. And so this specific love, God has coined in a sense. And David wants to experience that again. But in this context, David is giving it as an imperative, like a command to God. It's an imperative to God to lavish his love upon God by way of salvation. Now the CSB that I read and the ESV, which most of you read, does have salvation but it should be understood that it's more of a deliverance from his, his enemies around him. If you're familiar with David, he was constantly around enemies. So when David's hope is grounded on God's promise, which in this passage literally is according to your word. So when you go back to verse 41 where it says, as you promised, that is literally according to your word. The redeeming work of God in saving his people from trials, tribulations, and troubles is how David understands that God's loving kindness is genuine. God's promise to save provides the foundation of trust for David to stand on and proclaim his glory. 
Verse 42, David writes, then I, answer, sorry, then I can answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. So the promised salvation he wants from the Lord, that love, he wants to have that. Then he can answer the one who taunts him, for I trust in your word. Now, trusting in God doesn't mean trusting he'll provide material riches, a new car, a new job, a new house. Rather, it is trusting God's promises when he has stripped away your material riches, when he stripped away everything you hold dear in this life. Will you be faithful to the Lord's commands, trusting him in all things, or will you turn away as the rich young ruler did? You see, the world will taunt you just like Job's wife. You know the story of Job, right? Everything was taken from him. Everything. And what did his wife say to him? Curse God and die. In this case, curse God and walk away, maybe. It looks like your God doesn't exist if he doesn't fulfill your promises, his promises to you. Your God doesn't exist when you've lost your child. Where was God in those moments, right? But here's the thing. We don't trust God because he will supply our needs according to what we think we need. We trust God because he knows best what we need and when we need it. That's called waiting on the Lord. Isaiah 40, verse 31, the prophet says, But those who trust, or hope, or wait, you can put those words in there, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. But one shouldn't think of waiting, trusting, and hoping in the Lord as sitting still while you're going to wait for an audible voice from the sky. Rather than looking at Isaiah 40, verse 31, in the Hebrew, waiting or hoping or trusting means to be bound with or interwoven like strands of a cord. As Josh, as Josh Weedman writes, when we, wait, when we wait on God, we are bound with him. It provides us the strength this passage promises. Waiting on the Lord is actively growing in faith toward him, not passively hoping he calls you next. We remain faithful to his commands regardless of the situation or circumstance because he determines the outcome. Do you know better? No. He determines the outcome. That's why he is God. And his determined outcome will always, always be the best outcome for you. It will always be the best outcome for you. Even in the moment it doesn't feel that way, if God has brought it about, that means it is the best outcome for you and for his glory. Now getting back to David. Because David trusts in God's word and that God will deliver him from his enemies, he feels confident to answer those who taunt him, claiming that Yahweh doesn't exist or lacks the power to save, right? David's trust in what God promises as he claims in his word gives him the boldness to answer his foes. God constantly was delivering David. Verse 43, David writes, Never take the word of truth from my mouth, for I hope in your judgments. Now this verse, verse verse 43, it's an anchor point on which all the following four verses are attached and hang on. David, again, in a sense, he commands God to never take his word from his mouth. It is interesting that David feels he needs to ask this of God. If he belongs to God, 
God has chosen him. Why would David say, God, don't take your word from my mouth? You think he'd want the opposite. Lord, keep your word in my mouth. Help your word come out of my mouth. So why would you think he would ask this of God? Well, first, let's look at the second half of the passage. David provides the foundation for his command, the word for. For, I hope in your judgments. Now, we can actually replace for with the word because. So starting with the second part of the verse with a slight modification, it would read, Because I hope in your judgments, you will never take the word of truth from my mouth. So we can see that David is expressing his profound sense of trust and hope in God's promises. But there is a second way to also read this. The way David expresses his command to God is also a plea that when he experiences season of spiritual drought, which we've all experienced, have we not, of spiritual drought, you're in a moment where you don't maybe believe in God. You don't want God. Where is God, right? And in those moments, he's saying, in those moments of despair, God, don't take your word away from me. Don't take it from me. So you can hear that, that command to God, don't take your word from me. I do believe, but I'm in a bad spot right now. I need your word to revitalize my soul. So don't take it from me. Verse 44 is our second marker, obedience to the word. Excuse me, obedience to the word. David says, I will always obey your instruction forever and ever. In this verse and the rest of the following verses, we can actually insert a then, the word then, at the start of each sentence. So, so then I will, so then this, so then that, right? These four verses are called cohortative statements. Cohortative statements. Kind of a fancy word, but basically, these are statements that are expressing a very strong desire by the person speaking. That this person, David, wants to perform these things. He's very intense about it. So think of the intensity in these, in these statements. He's very passionate about how he's saying these things. So going back to the anchor point of, or, of verse 43, in David's demand, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> in David's demand that God never takes his word from his mouth, he says he will obey his instruction forever and ever. Now looking at verse 43, we can say that hope is likened to faith. Hope is likened to faith. And David is assured in God's loving kindness and his promises that he will not take his word from him. And therefore, he will obey his instructions. Isn't it hard to obey in a moment of despair? Isn't it hard to obey when you feel like your world is crashing around you? But David is saying, no, he will obey. He will obey. And again, it's important when we read this that David isn't just saying, yes, God, I will obey. He's saying, yes, I will obey. I desire to obey. I want to obey your commands. I need to. He's not giving lip service to God, as maybe we do at times. So yes, I know I need to do this. Yes, I know I should do that. But David's not doing that here. So rather, following the the markers along the path so far... We have gone from knowing that God keeps his promises to trusting his word, and now here we are in obedience. John Piper, commenting on Abraham's obedience to God in Genesis 15, 
He says, quote, this obedience was the fruit of Abraham's faith. Now, he's talking about a different scenario, but I want to bring this here to our context. So what Piper said, this obedience was the fruit of Abraham's faith. I'm going to reword it, and it's going to say, obedience is the fruit of faith. Obedience is the fruit of faith. If we see that God's word is unlike any other writing, having power, right? Did not his word create the world, bring it into existence? His word is like no other writing. It has power. Therefore, we trust God because of it. And therefore, that trust should plant a faith that produces obedience. Psalm 1-3, the psalmist writes, He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. A plant of faith, as the psalmist tells us, is planted by flowing streams of water. And what kind of water is this passage pointing to? The living water of Christ. And no matter what season it is, the tree, who's the tree? Us, right? The tree remains strong and prospers in season and out of season because of the source, the living water it is connected to. So no matter if it's scorching heat, blistering winds, snow, doesn't matter. As long as we, the tree, is planted by that stream, it will remain intact. It will not fall away. But what does that look like for us? Over the last month, 1 Peter 5, 6-7 through 7 has been a great source of comfort, hope, and peace for me. Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. For the longest time, I would see humble as the opposite of prideful, but understood as prideful of my own intelligence or my own possessions or my achievements or whatever it is. That's what I would think that, that Peter is specifically referring to here. But what I needed to understand is that humbling myself also, and very importantly, meant that I am not in control. I am not in control. For years, years I've had the habit of placing deadlines and living by a rigorous routine and making an idol out of those things. And in doing so, it severely affected my health, my relationship to the Lord, and in my personal and ministry relationships. I needed to cast my idolatrous cares of routine and deadlines upon the Lord. And the trial I was going through because of it, as harrowing and soul-crushing as it was, the verse in 1 Peter said that it would come to an end at the proper time. What's the proper time? God's time. His time, not my time. That's the problem. I want it to be at my time. It says the proper time is His time. That's what it means. And those words, at the proper time, were a lifeline for me. I was just hanging on to that because I could not wait till that proper time came. 
Because of who God is, as he has shown us in his word and revealed to us by the lights of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Christ Jesus, I knew that he would deliver me. I knew that he would deliver me. I would have to bear it, and I still bear through it, but he always provides the way out. He always does. I had to be obedient in my circumstances, giving up the lie of control over my life. Didn't think it was there, but it was there. Really, really deep down. Really deep down. And you realize when you're trying to hang on to control, it's absolutely crushing. Crushing. But he provides the way out. He does. Let's keep going. So verses 45 and 46 make up our third marker. Seeking the word. Seeking the word. David writes, I will walk freely in an open place because I study your precepts. And looking at the last half of the passage, the text says, study your precepts. But literally, it actually is to seek your word. So study your precepts literally is seek your word. David's obedience to the Lord, notably in seeking after the word of God, has given him peace. He's longing for the word. He's desiring it. He's seeking it. You seek for things you desire to have or to want or to see, even to see. You seek things, you want to go see it. And because of that, he can walk in open spaces where adversaries and enemies may lurk around him. What can, what can man do to me since God, the maker of heaven and earth, is my protector? That's what's going on in David's heart. And we should be the same way. As we walk in open spaces of enemies all around us, we should say, what can man do to me? I belong to the Lord. What can man do to me? I should be able to walk in open spaces as a man seeking after God's own heart and seeking his word and not be afraid. Listen to 46. He says, I will speak of your decrees before kings and not be ashamed. And because he can walk in open spaces without fear of man, he confidently promises to speak without shame of God's testimonies before kings. What did Christ say in Matthew 10, 18? He says that we will be brought before governors and kings because of him to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. David was kind of like a, a prefigurement of that, right? But listen to this, church. So in a, in a turn of irony, the very thing that brings us great fear, which would be being captured and persecuted by kings and governments for our faith, we are only there because Christ decreed it. He wants you there. He wants you there. So knowing that, if Christ wants me there, if he wants you there, knowing that we can be at peace, unashamed, and speaking boldly about our king. Isn't that a great way to look at that? As terrifying as that would be, you would only be there because he decreed it. You're there for his purposes. And you're there for your good. He wants us there to proclaim his glory. It wasn't a random event or just bad luck. 
If you are captured for your faith, it is because your king wanted you there. It's the only place where a prisoner of war was sovereignly determined. Some years ago, I attended a chapel service at um, Azusa Pacific University. And the pastor was speaking of his experience in China. He went out there because he wanted to see this, you know, the persecuted church. He felt that, hey, I need to go over here and, and see what this is about. And he said that the, there's a, a couple of people he talked to that when he talked to them, he said that their, faith, that their faith was anchored in Christ's words, which said that his followers would be persecuted for faith in Christ and the gospel. That was like what they said. That was what anchored their faith. But here's the thing. They heard that at first, but they weren't sure. And then when they were persecuted for believing in Jesus, they reveled in their faith. Because that to them was that God's word was true. Not because God gave them a new car or a new house or whatever you want to say, no food. Because they were persecuted, that was the proof to them. Their words, his word is true because I'm persecuted for believing upon Jesus. They didn't grow in their faith because God provided material goods. Rather, when losing their goods and being hated for his namesake, their faith flourished and they became bold for the gospel. Brings us to verse 47, our fourth marker. Love of the word. He says, I delight in your commands, which I love. I delight in your commands, which I love. What do you delight in? Your spouse? Your children? Your favorite food? Watching the sunset? We all have things that we take great, great joy and delight in. But what what makes these things so enjoyable to us? So for your spouse. Your spouse is your soulmate, right? Till death do you part. He or she was that special someone who touched your heart in a way that nobody else could, right? And no one ever could. And so you want to spend the rest of your life with that person. And because of that love bond, your children came to be. Thus a product of your love and a special one-of-a-kind gift from the Lord. Your children become the most precious creatures here on earth to you, do they not? Food. What food can you eat every day and never lose a desire for it? For me, it's ice cream. Every day. There is not a day that goes by that I do not have ice cream. Snickers bar ice creams every single day. Keeps me thin. Keeps me trim. And pizza. So Domino's is a new pan pizza. They work at that crust for like three years. It is the best pizza. I would have it every day. It's my daily bread, right? My daily bread. And then many of you might remember that I like the Limon Pepino flavored Rockstar drinks. If you want to hear more about that, go to my sermon titled Refresh Me and you can hear all about it. What about sunsets? My daughter squeals and gets all giddy when the sun, the sun is setting. She sprints out the back door and she's just taking picture after picture and she comes in and she's all like this. Did you see that, Dad? You think she's having a delectable chocolate cake. She just loves them. So I'm sure you are all listing various things in your mind that you delight in. But was Scripture on your list? I know I kind of set it up that way. But really, did any of you think that Scripture was on your list of things you delight in? 
David delights in God's commands as you and I delight in the things that I just named. But he does so because of the grace of the one who issued those commands. We must love God's word above all things. Why? Because in his word, in the person of Jesus Christ, we have life, abundant life. If someone were trash-talking your spouse, would you just change the subject or just turn away? No, you would speak up for your spouse because of your fierce and devoted love for your spouse. Now, I'm not calling for violence, but I'm saying you would speak up. If someone were trash-talking Jesus, would you just shake your head in annoyance and walk away? Would you respond with the same fervor and devoted love that you have for your children or your spouse in those moments for Jesus. If someone tried to hurt your child, you would die protecting her without thinking twice because of your love for her. What about this? If you knew that smuggling Bibles into China was going to result in your imprisonment, torture, and even death, would you think twice about volunteering? Or does your love for God's word compel you to give up your life now so that others can experience eternal life found only in the word of God? You see, what you delight in, you treasure. What you treasure is where your heart is, and where your heart is is where your deepest love is. And David has that kind of love for God's word. Do you have the same? And now we're to our fifth and last marker. Love of the word leads to worship. Love of the word leads to worship. Verse 48, David writes, I will lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and will meditate on your statutes. What is worship? It's celebration. Worship is celebration. When we love and delight in something, we cannot help but talk about it and celebrate it. I tell everybody, my daughter has a piano account on YouTube, and she has 7,500 subscribers every time. I'm so happy for her. But if she said that, you'd be like, ah, get out of here, kid. Quit being so full of yourself. But we do that for our kids, right? We just, we love our kids, and we want to talk about them. It's celebration. But what we love also brings us fulfillment and peace, does it not? And that is what the Word of God should do for us. It should bring us fulfillment and peace because it's God talking to us. It's the God of this world bringing us into a unique, special relationship with him. And we should have peace because all the things that we hate in this world, all the struggles, all the stuff that we do not like, it's been conquered. It's, it's done for. It has no claim on anybody here, on none of his children. Do the things of this world have a claim? So therefore, you should find peace. And when we are in a state of peace, having found rest in Christ, worship follows from that. When you're content, right? When you've had a wonderful meal, you lay back a little bit in worship, right? That sigh is worship because you're so at peace for the food you just ate eaten. And David's intense love of the word causes him to lift his hands to grasp and enjoy it. 
His love for the Word of God is not just a a feeling or one-time experience in a worship service when his favorite song was playing on the lyre and there was the aroma of this burning incense was so intense. No. He has an enduring love for the Word which which leads him to meditate on it once a week, once a year, day and night. Think about spouses. If your husband or your wife just came to see you once a week, you wouldn't think he or she loves you very much. That's God's words, the same thing. You've got to come to it day in and day out, night in and night out. And it is only by meditating on the word of the Lord that David will then be ready when his enemies come to taunt him. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 23. David writes, Though princes, princes sit together speaking against me, your servant will think about your statutes. So David's path of trusting, abiding, seeking, loving, and worshiping the glorious God of Scripture is how David could be so bold for his faith. In those moments when he knows there's plans against him, enemies against him, he will think about God's statutes, his commands, his word. David could sit and wait while listening to plans around him that would lead to his death only because he trusts, abides, seeks, loves, and worships the Almighty God. Can you do that? Are you bold enough in your faith to wait for God to act and to give your life for him if he calls upon you to do so? Paul did. Many Christians before us have done the same thing. But for Paul... Christ specifically said he would show him how much he will suffer for his namesake. Wow. That's like the first thing he says. I will show him how much he's going to suffer for my namesake. And Paul took it with palms on the ground and said, yes, Lord. Your grace is sufficient. And that love leads to boldness and that's what Paul had so do you do you have that love that would lead to boldness to share the truth of Christ if you don't then you need to get a hold of the word of God and jump head first into it you need to repent of your sins all your sins every day David was a horrendous sinner was he not But he was a man, Scripture says, after God's own heart because he had a contrite spirit, a life constant of repentance, sorry, a life constant, constant of repentance and trust in God. It's a daily thing, sometimes hour to hour. Think of all the sins that you know that you constantly commit in your heart. Do you just kind of step over them? Or do you just say, Lord, forgive me for that sin. Lord, forgive me for that. It's an awareness of your fallenness. But the fact is because we have Christ and we have access to the Father, He hears every single thing we say. And He receives every single thing we say. Then we have Christ up there interceding for us as our great high priest. So no matter what you do, He just cleanses it. He cleanses it as it comes up to the Lord. That's the aroma going up to the Lord. Instead of the smell of burning death from bodies... He gets an aroma of incense that comes up to him through Christ. That's what we have every time we give up prayers, every time we confess our sin. 
That's what the Lord receives from us. And he says what? You have been forgiven. No condemnation for you, ever. Scripture reading, prayer, committing yourself to the sound teaching and preaching of gospel-centered pastors, fellowship with brothers and sisters of the faith, and living your life as set apart, abstaining from the evil things of this world, and finally, gratitude. Gratitude. Gratitude is... The word's not big enough in our language. But gratitude is the word that we must hold on to. That that should fuel everything is the gratitude we should have. Because we know what awaits for those that God has not called. We know what's there. And so we should be of the utmost, of the utmost of gratefulness, of gratitude. You know, when they talk about those praying in the Bible or praying in the Old Testament or even in the early days of the church, when they prayed, they didn't just sit there on their chair and, and pray. They, they laid face down in the dirt on their stomach, sprawled out. That's how they prayed. They couldn't get low enough. They got as low as they could because they knew, I am a man of unclean lips. Like, that's what they knew that. And they had so much gratitude. So I cannot stress it enough. That word has just been so, it's been so magnificent for me. And there's a song I recommend from Brandon Lake called Gratitude. I mean, that's a, another way of getting close to the Lord is hearing these songs of worship, of making your heart just full of gratitude to God for what he has done. So yeah, listen to it. It is absolutely just, it's a soul lifter, an absolute soul lifter to the Lord. But I know for many of you, probably it's a challenge to be in the word, to be praying, to kind of have this life oriented to this. You know, maybe you're a newer believer and so you don't have those kind of routines yet or habits. Or if you've been in the faith for maybe, maybe decades and you read your Bible once in a while, maybe you read it because you feel like you have to. Maybe you want to do more of it, but you just kind of keep making other things priority. But church, I want you to hear this. Righteous actions lead to righteous desires. Or you can say righteous actions produce righteous desires. All right, so I'm not, I'm not advocating that you have to go and, and do good works as a sense to earn anything. But what it is, it, it creates the spiritual disciplines in your life. The more you do it, the more you benefit from it, the more you want to do it. And you just keep going step after step after step. And it just becomes part of your walk with Christ. So righteous actions lead to righteous desires. So commit yourself to his ways. Follow the path as I noted above. And you will be bold for him in season and out of season. Church, God is faithful to his people even when they lack boldness, giving them the boldness they need. He is faithful to his people even when they show cowardice, giving them the courage they need. And God is faithful to his people even when they show faithlessness, giving them the faith that they need. Now there might be some listening online. Some may be here right now that don't know Christ. Or maybe you think you do, but there's no conviction in your heart for sin. You don't really see the cross as glorious. You don't see the work as glorious. And the reality is, what I mentioned in Revelation 21.8, 
of those that are going to inherit the lake of fire, that's true. We're not just trying to compel people to come to church and give money. You're going to face the Almighty God on that day, and you have nothing to show for it. There's nothing you can say because you know your heart. You know the thoughts that you have. You know the things that you've done in secret. If you felt convicted or if you felt that you've had a guilty conscience, where does that come from? It comes from God. He put his stamp on every single person to know what is righteous and good and holy. But man's sinfulness is looked away from those things and he tries to cover it. He covers it with the things of this world. He covers it with possessions. He covers it with alcohol. He covers it with any type of vice you can think of. Man gets himself in bondage to that because he doesn't want to face the reality. He suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness. So if that is you, I'm telling you to repent. I'm demanding you repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. And he will set you free, not to be cliched, but that is the truth. It is a freeing like nothing else. To know that you're forgiven, that you're forgiven for every thought, every deed, everything is gone, it's forgiven. That's what he promises. And that's what David wanted to hang on to because he knew how much of a sinner he is. So again, I tell you, please repent and trust in Christ. Let us pray. Lord, gosh, your word is just, it's so good, Lord. It just gets to our heart every time, Lord. I thank you, Father, for making us the way you have. And you've made us new in Christ. You've given us new hearts, Lord, and I thank you for that, the grace you've given us, Lord. And so as we have gone through these points, Lord, help us to be bold. Help us to have a love for you and for your word greater than any other material thing on this planet. Because when we have a love for something like that, we cherish it and we want people to share in it. Help us not to be concerned about what others say. Don't be like like David was, was struggling with the taunters. We have taunters all around us. We have skeptics all around us. But David ultimately was what? He was bold because of his love for your word, Lord. So help us have that love. Help us to be bold in the face of those taunters, of those that deny who you are, Lord. Give us that courage. Give us the grace we need. And we'll be bold for you. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everybody.